entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show. Here's Marty Wolf. We still got a long way to go. Yes, we all got a long way to go. Welcome to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf. And a special welcome to my guest host, Jay Kelly Hoey. Along with Kelly and our executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guides on this learning journey. Jay Kelly Hoey and I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders. And we are all leaders at some point, so you can then inspire others. You can find out more about J. Kelly Hoey at jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. And you can find Kelly on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. The Business Builder Show is distributed by C-Suite Radio. You can find The Business Builder Show and many other fine shows on C-Suite Radio. That's at www.c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Okay, Kelly, let's get going. This is Kelly Hoey, author of the book, Build Your Dream Network, and more importantly, guest host of the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf. And I am absolutely thrilled today to have my friend, Melissa Gonzalez, founder of the Lioness Group, as our guest. Hey, Melissa. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time, but for those who don't know you, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, you've had an interesting career path into entrepreneurship. You started on Wall Street. Uh, you were at Credit Suisse doing institutional sales, and now you're like the retail guru. Um, <laughs> do you want to explain how that happened? Yeah, I mean, I left to pursue more creative endeavors for sure. To be totally honest, at that time, I thought it was to be a famous actress. Um, but I didn't love auditioning. So that was short lived. Serendipitously, an opportunity came up in Midtown Manhattan where a family said, Hey, we have a space. Do you um, want to do partner and be, do something creative with us? And so it was a little bit of just right time, and I had time, and so we went ahead with that experiment, and people liked it. So we moved from there. Well, I'm, I want to talk more about the market um, uh, in a little bit um, because I think that's a really interesting idea as, as people sort of, I want to say, struggle with what to do with bricks and mortar retail space in this, you know, sort of omni-channel shopping era. Um, but okay, so how did you start? I mean, other than the auditions and acting, how did you kind of, I want to say, scratch that entrepreneurial itch until you found out what it was? And what was the lessons from being, I want to say, you know, in that suit job, um, a very different structured suit job? What What were the lessons from that that have taken you into entrepreneurship? You know, I I think when you work on a trading desk, you learn multitasking and like just kind of dealing with what is thrown at you and figuring it out um, in a way that most other industries, you know, I think production is very similar to that. And a part of what we do, do today is um, is production. So 
um, you know, being able to digest information coming from a lot of different sources at the same time, different opinions and, and kind of digesting all of it and streamlining it and then doing something actionable as efficiently as possible um, is definitely something that I could say came from a trading desk. Um, and then just understanding how you, when you make markets, I think is relevant as well because you're matching buyers and sellers and you have to understand where their interests are and, you know, what, what appeals to what audience versus the other. So that's all been um, really helpful to me. And then I just think the, just the work ethic and the mentality of it, you know, especially when I worked on Wall Street right out of college many years ago, you know, it was like, if you're, if you're on time, you're late, um, you know, you, 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 you just, your boss expected you to just always have their back. Like there was just some, it was, um, a lot of tough love from day one that you just conditioned you to just work a certain way. And so I think no matter what industry you're in, that was always helpful for me going forward. I love that, um, explanation you gave in terms of those, um, I'm going to say transit, you know, the way to transition skills and someone imagining that, you know, maybe they are working on a trading desk, maybe they're working in a financial services company and they're listening to this and they're thinking, how is this applicable? But, you know, the whole idea of, all right, you may have been doing institutional sales, but that's, you know, two different markets. And how do you match those people up? And how do you step back from that and say, how does it apply elsewhere? All right, let's talk. I'm going to swap some questions. I know you and I had had sort of bantered before about how we were going to structure our conversation today. But let's start with what is Lionesque doing today? So we are working a lot with brands who are rethinking what's possible and physical. And so it runs the gamut for sure as far as types of industries and uh, the stage of a brand's life cycle and um, what their goals are. But, um, you know, what what I would say is we work with real estate developers now and they're really starting to understand that they need to rethink what is um, possible and physical as well, and that the standard light lease agreement isn't the, what it used to be, and the way in which retailers and brands use physical isn't what it used to be, and the expectations of how a space is delivered isn't what it used to be, and so helping them really think through how they position themselves going forward, and for developers, it's really tricky because they're breaking ground for something that's opening three or four years from now, so how do they have the right um, forward thinking to be well positioned for for when for when they are ready to open doors and then on the brand side you know physical is a really important touch point but it's main role has shifted a bit over the years and so helping them think through okay well how does this touch point make a ton of sense in the entire ecosystem of all your touch points with with mobile and desktop and and physical and social media and what are we going to deliver that's different and how is it going to continue the conversation and so you know it's everything from ideation to design to sourcing and build out to operational strategy to data collection and analyzation um I'm just I'm sort of thinking I'm thinking, looking at your own Instagram um, stream recently. There you were in Vancouver with a hard hat on. Um, I've seen you standing on a ladder with a paint roller. I've also seen you, you know, flashing, uh, you know, I want to say selfies madly um, for, you know, Mark Jacobs and a perfume launch. So when I think of all these aspects of your job um, and what you've built with Lioness today, but that's not where it all started. And I'm, you know, having seen the whole some of the some of or most of the 
evolution. You started off originally as an e-commerce, more like an e-commerce site. So can you talk more about like how, you know, why you pivoted and how you sort of, you know, did the gut check and say, all right, we got to move in a new direction? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I wish I would have just stuck with it from the beginning. Um, But, you know, sometimes you take those curves and it makes you better going forward. Um, At the time when we first started working with brands, it was all emerging brands. And so really none of them had a great e-commerce presence. And so their pop-ups would go away. And then then what? There was really no centralized way to find them. And that's why we had come up with the e-commerce marketplace back in 2011, 2012. And then we just found, unless you were owning inventory, um, it was really difficult, um, you know, brand brands at that stage kind of were eager to be able to sell wherever they could. And so unless you were creating a marketplace with exclusivities and really creating a reason why people needed to shop your site and nothing else, it was really challenging. And without buying inventory up front, it was really hard to secure exclusive collections and products. So, but what we did see is as we were trying to move in that direction, what was happening on the other side was on the pop-up side, the types of brands that started to come to us started to shift and become later stage and um, with, with larger budgets and bigger initiatives. And I would say when we started working with Jay Hilburn, um, I'm trying to think in 2013, that's when things kind of shifted and we moved back away from the e-commerce marketplace and fully focused on what was naturally coming in. So it's, you know, I think a lot of times when you're, you're an entrepreneur, you, you have a, you have an idea and you run so hard to, to make it happen. And then something else organically is coming your way. And once in a while you have to do a gut check and say, okay, wait, I'm fighting the tide in one direction and the ocean's bringing me something else. And I, maybe I need to listen to that. So after working with Jay Hilburn, um, kind of shifted in that direction. And that's when we started working a lot more with fast growing digital natives. And then I would say over the past couple of years that continued to evolve further with, um, you know, more established, larger mass market brands that are traditionally wholesale distributed, but looking to create experience locations in addition to the real estate part of the equation, really understanding like, okay, things are changing. We can't ignore it and we need help doing it. That's so cool. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about that time period where, uh, and this is in terms of projects you've worked on. Let's talk about the market, which was, um, I want to say, sort of your creative opportunity, right place, right time that got that switch for you from being, I want to say, on Wall Street to being the retail pop-up guru that you are. Um, And then let's talk about um, IRL in Chicago. Let's talk about Penguin Random House because, you know, they are my publisher. And so I had to pick (laughs) that out of your client examples. And, you know, Food 52, which is a very you know, well-known uh, destination website, I think, for a lot of people in the in the food space. And you did their first physical uh, retail pop-up experience. I remember that in, in Union Square. But let's start with the market, because that was a really interesting one, a busy corner uh, in New York City at a hotel with sort of some underutilized um, retail space. Sure, yeah. I mean, that was my serendipitous opportunity back in 2009 with RS Pop. Uh, was the first pop-up space we worked with, um, a revolving storefront concept where brands could pop into an address that people got to know and and knew that there was something exciting and fresh happening throughout the year. So we started that in 2009 as an experiment. Um, Brands paid me in clothes and half the outlets didn't work. I remember we were two pop-ups in and like the ceiling just opened up 
and the fire department had to come and we didn't know <laughs> if the next pop-up was going to open. It was like that kind of thing, but brands really valued it. And so a uh, partnership with the Roger Smith hotel, um, kind of grew from that and they started investing in renovating spaces in 2010 and really making a program out of it. And of course us charging dollars, not just clothes exchange uh, for our work. And that's since grown from one space to four spaces all revolving throughout the year. Um, half, Half of it is already booked through the end of next year. And so really seeing a need for, for brands to want to do this. And we've since worked with extending our partnership relationships with other properties in New York City. We just opened uh, a program at the Godfrey Hotel in Boston. It's going to be a revolving storefront program as well. So, you know, I think a lot of brands, as they got to experience it, saw that there's a lot of value actually in, in being in a turnkey pop-up environment and also the hotels realizing there was a lot of natural synergies by having something fresh and new in their space all the time and making it a talking point and the benefits they would get from all the media impressions and um, the ancillary benefits of, of, of more room bookings and event spaces. And so all around, it's it's been a great area to partner with. Well, I sort of think of it too, thinking of like the Roger Smith, it's, it's in a prime location in terms of um, commuters and all the rest of it, but it's also got that you know, if there's unless there's something fresh and new, we're just racing by it to get to Grand Central or racing by it to get to our office. And now there's something, oh, what's new in here? And now maybe I'm going to stop and shop or check things out. Right, exactly. Um, okay, so talk about IRL in Chicago. Yeah, so IRL was a baby that we gave birth to last year. Um, and that was in partnership with formerly GGP, now Brookfield Properties. And they... Um, you know, they wanted to create something different. I had been talking to Erin um, for a long time. And so we had been speaking, how do we make this happen? And so we created, um, you know, kind of along the lines of what we're talking about, where property owners and, and mall groups, and they're trying to figure out how do we cre- how do we create a platform that makes it a lot more turnkey and accessible for brands to kind of test the waters in our properties um, and, and, and a low friction w- way. And mm-hmm. so we help them develop IRL, which stands for in real life, an opportunity for brands to be in a, uh, a full turnkey environment and test the waters uh, at one of their properties. We started with the home category. So it was IRL at home, and it was 15 different brands. It was fully designed. We oversaw the build out. Um, it was operated um, by our team. And, it, and we also launched a tech platform to track data analytics throughout the space. And so that was something that um, we did with them last year. And, and it was great because you got to see a lot of these brands live together, test the waters, test Chicago. Um, there was a ton of media coverage for it, uh, which a lot of the brands benefited from. And also data collections, an area where everybody wants it, but they don't know, you know, they either don't have the resources to invest in it or they don't have the internal manpower to really set up um, the software side of it or, or analyze the data that comes in. And so it really gave shed a lot of light on on it for both sides, both the brands and the real estate side of what did foot traffic look like? Where were they spending times? What categories, you know, with, within home were people caring about? What was converting? What wasn't converting? And it would provide a lot of good information. Oh, anything you can share with us? Well, it was interesting to see, you know, we created the shopping key, which was um, 
powered by RFID. And so you saw how in store there was those impulse purchases, products under a hundred bucks that people would walk in, make those, you know, spontaneous gift purchases. But the the products of consideration is really where we're able to capture purchase intent. And I think that's where a lot of brands and retailers, it's a, it's a, it's like a black hole. They don't see it. You know, people go into a store, they like something and take a picture on their phone. Maybe they take a picture of the price tag and then they go look it up later. It's really hard for them to attribute if there's a sale later that it's because they came to visit your store. So to be able to tie that back was huge. And we saw that. So, so I'm going to stop, stop you there. How do you tie it back? So we were able to collect every key's information. So it was autonomized until you opted in to give more information. But we got to see, like, if you tapped something to your key, you could text it to a friend and get their opinion. You could purchase it later. It was all through affiliate links. So we know that if a purchase made, we can tie it back to your RFID key. So we know that that purchase was tied to your in-store visit. That it's amazing. Like I want to say that exactly as you said. So the sort of the black hole because they're with consumers now. I think the complexity of consumers is being fully revealed because we have so many different ways to shop and buy, um, and consider. And as, as you point out, you know, get somebody else's opinion who's not in the room. Um, that's phenomenal. Talk about Food Fifty Two. Um, and the and their reasons for wanting to do a physical store because you know they have such a luscious website they have an incredible newsletter mm-hmm. uh, they have a cookbook uh, why the heck did they need think they need a physical location? Well, you know they needed the location because they had done events before, but there's a difference between an event, right, and a, and a pop up store and really an immersive and most of them were in either event spaces or in their office. So here was an an immersive way to create these uh, aspirational moments that were then shoppable. They also had a really robust calendar of events with book signings. And, you know, both founders are, are authors and, and everything is, it's content means commerce. So, you know, there's there's a lot of their, most of their content is around recipes and then you buy products all around food in your life. And so to bring some of that content to life and have book signings done by famous chefs and and have tutorials of how, you know, how to use a knife and all these other things that really help bring in, you know, a community aspect around the products that they're selling. And so it was was a mixture of all of it. It was designed very aspirationally and then right near it, you can shop all all the products that they that were well merchandised on in, in the kitchen or in the living room or in the dining room or in the bedroom scene. And then um, you could get tickets to all of the events and really helped um, create a, a human connection behind the brand as well. That's that's so cool. And I'm just I'm remembering the space. It was I think it was the old Starbucks space in Union Square because you needed was, you needed a kitchen. Under- <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, it was, um, it was, it was something where, you know, that's an area where people underestimate, you know, doing a pop-up where you need a kitchen is not easy whatsoever. Um, because, uh, most landlords, that's an area where they won't really, um, they won't really do, they won't really like take on that risk. You yeah, know? yeah. People flinging knives and, you know, lighting up burners and, you know. Heating up hot oil, yeah, not exactly what every landlord wants in a, in a pop up um, and all the rest of it. I want to touch on the Penguin Random House because that was in Puerto Rico, wasn't it? If my memory that was, yes. So why on earth did a brand want to have like a destination location for a pop up? 
Um, so interesting. Um, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing because um, most people don't realize, but Borders Bookstore, when they went bankrupt, um, um, San Juan, Puerto Rico, was one of their top two highest grossing mm. stores in North America. Mm. So there was. I hear you. I hear you in the background there, Marty. I, I hear Did an aha back there. Wow. The peak in interest. Amazing. Yeah. Keep going. Don't stop. You know, the other thing was what the Amazon Prime. What it was like. That's, that wasn't happening in San Juan either when we did this pop-up, which was in the early 2016. So between having that void of borders closed and also not having like Amazon Prime there, there was a big gap in the market for books. And so Penguin Random House definitely saw that opportunity, um, but also, you know, wanted to support that market. And so they joined forces with a local distributor, distributor that they have a partnership with called JR Blue that already had a presence in San Juan, Puerto Rico for a bookstore called The Bookmark. And so we kind of leveraged that and and opened up another location in one of um, Simon Mall properties. But we also wanted to be a little bit more experiential and and story driven. And so that's where they brought us in and we designed uh, Let's Bookmark Your Next Adventure was kind of the tagline. Um, and I, um, actually wrote a poem that they, they put on the front window, which was cool. So I technically got published, I guess. And, um, and so, you know, we designed it with zip lines and really took inspiration from the rainforest in Puerto Rico. But it was, I would say, it's probably one of the m- more special projects we worked on because it was really interesting to see the genuine interest and excitement that they had for physical books in that market. I mean, they sold hundreds of books the first day. People were waiting outside. I mean, it was from teenager to 80-year-old. I mean, it was such a wide range of age and um, and and interest and just genuine excitement to have access to books again. It actually went from pop-up to permanent. Um, Penguin Random House wasn't the exclusive on it for the whole time, um, but kind of jump-started that. And the other thing was we we had a limited footprint because the store was only about uh, 2,000, a little under 2,000 square feet. So we created like an endless aisle bar there so they could browse the whole 20,000 skew uh, book list, even if it wasn't all available there Penguin Random House would have it shipped uh, to to the person looking to buy it in Puerto Rico. So it was great. That's amazing. I mean, thank you for sharing that because I didn't know all that background on it. And it's fascinating to think about it. You know, the things that we um, assume are dead, uh, bookstores or physical books or that interest in realizing, you know what, there's markets nearby where that's not the case. And how in this day and age can we, um, if you're a business owner, how you can take advantage of that. Um, now, your creativity in your poem. You've never told me that story, and I won't ask you to recite the poem. But I don't you... think I could. I could look it up, though. <laughs> well, we may, maybe we could put it in the show notes, Marty. Yeah. Um, but, okay, you have been published before. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to interject and, and object to that comment you made before. Um, so let's, uh, you're the author of the book, The Pop-Up Paradigm. Um, it is a book that you self-published for reasons of business development, as I recall, if my memory is correct. Um, talk about why you thought that was a good investment of time and money and why you chose to self-publish um, and what's been the result of having done that. You know, it was interesting. You know, the story is definitely interesting with um, <laughs> with how that went uh, with Tucker Max, but 
it was really everybody. So, so I'm going to pause you for a second. Mar- Marty, if you don't know, Mel literally started somebody else's business by accosting them to get him. Uh, and this is uh, author Tucker Mack to get him to help her write a book. And when he said, I can't do that, I don't do ghost writing. She's like, well, how are you going to solve my problem? And anyway, it's now got <laughs> a different name, but it was it was then book in a box. And that launched because Mel harassed this guy at a dinner party. Anyhow, c- continue from there, Mel. <laughs> Yeah, so so he actually, I mean, he wrote some crazy books. I didn't have the best opinion of him, but I was excited to sit next to him for all his success anyway. Um, but every, he ended up being a really nice guy. He, he, you know, it's a persona and then there's the real person, right? Um, but he, he and I were talking and everybody kept telling me, well, if you want to be an expert, you got to write a book. And I, like, when am I going to do that? And also, I don't, I'm not a writer. I mean, I, but I could speak. You know, and I'm speaking from an area of of having done it, not theoretical. And so my argument with him at the time was like, well, you know how to write and I know how to do what I do. So why can't you just help me? And that then launched his idea of Book in a Box, which now is a different name, actually. They renamed the company, but it worked out. I mean, I didn't, I, I don't know what they charge today. I'm sure it's more because this was a couple of years ago. And I, I to my... Um, What's the right word? I actually didn't know I was his guinea pig fully until after the fact. Um, but they did work closely with me. And so for the investment I made, and I I have to look. I think it was it might, it might have been 12. I don't remember. But, um, it was like $12,000 or $15,000. Yeah, I remember some, you telling me. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, within two months of being published, I signed a client that would have never found us otherwise. There you go. And um, that contract was tripled my investment. So it was worth it. And and now, you know, I still sell books three years later. So. Yeah. Well, and I also loved it because, too, there were so many emerging brands and new startups and entrepreneurs who used to send you the, hey, I'd like to pick your brain over coffee. Can you tell me about how I can do my own pop-up? Um, and instead, you could say, hey, why don't you buy the book on Amazon? It's the price of the cup of coffee. And then let me know if you ever you know, have some serious questions. Yeah, exactly. I love the call. Hey, can I pick your brain? No, you can buy my book. I've got all the basic information in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's this Kelly is always talking about how to make things happen. You know, this networking idea. She's uh, she's really good at that. Can I jump in for a minute? Please do, Marty. Uh, Melissa, amazing story. Uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. I looked at the I looked at your site and I looked at the things you're doing. Uh, one of the one of the things that's going through my mind is the skills of your team. Uh, obviously, you're very skilled, but what other skills do you have on your team that kind of helps put all this together? Um, yeah, so um, it's a mix. So there's um, our head of strategy, and he helps me a lot with ideation and budgeting, and um, budgeting not just for us but for our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, we have designers, um, so we'll do conceptualization and ideation together and mood boards together, but then they do all the renderings and really bring it to life. Um, and then we have project managers who uh, see the execution, oversee sourcing, oversee budget management, oversee run a show, mm-hmm. um, oversee technology integration if needed. Um, we have a warehousing team if needed, and then we have uh, uh, staffing coordinators if needed. A lot of the times with short-term brands are looking for staff support. So Mm. 
Wow. A lot of times it'll be a mix of them and then a team that will bring in to support the uh, the day-to-day operations of the store. But wow. you yourself have got a lean team. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sounds We're that working. Way. I'd like it to be a little bigger, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's lean and effective for now. <laughs> Everyone gets to do everything. As I said, if you if you look at Mel's Instagram, you'll see uh, you know at one minute she's uh, doing uh, you know I say her retail segment on Cheddar, and the next minute she's uh, got the sleeves rolled up and a paint roller and uh, yeah um, all the rest of it. So so doing a little little of everything. Um, you got something else there you want to ask Mel, Marty? I just want to make sure that we know, uh, we tell everyone clearly her name, the websites, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, thank you for the reminder, Marty. Sure. Mel, where can everybody find you? Where's the best place for them to find all about you? Uh, well, you can go to lionesquegroup.com for sure. Um, then there's socials. You have um, Mel's Styles. That was from my Lioness Style days, but I never changed it. Um, and then Lioness Group. So on Twitter, Instagram, uh, those are the handles. And then, yeah, our website. And um, we're pretty fast to respond, I yeah. think. Uh, can, I ask one more, can I ask one more question? Please. Oh. Yes. I'm just... <laughs> I love your interest. Do it. I'm amazed. I really am. This is this is this is amazing. Good for you. Um, but with all that being uh, said and done, so so what's next? What 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 world are you going to conquer next? Oh, I don't know. Uh, good answer. I don't know. We have a few things brewing um, that we can't say yet. Okay. But I think that we're just you know we're working a lot with bigger brands now who are mm. realizing that. The traditional distribution models of just licensing their name or mm-hmm. wholesale distributing isn't enough anymore, and that doesn't that doesn't help protect them when it comes to creating a really sticky emotional connection with consumers and their brand. Mm-hmm. And so, helping them say, "Okay, you have those channels, but how do you also now take some ownership again of your brand?" and create your own destinations. And so that that's that part is getting to be exciting. So um, we have to stay they, tuned, huh? Yeah, you're going to have to stay tuned. But between 2019 and 2020, there's a couple of really big ones um, in in the works. Excellent. Okay, Kelly. Ooh, we'll have to get you back, Melissa, to talk about that. And we didn't talk about the smart city stuff and what's oh, going I on. Oh, that's true. That's true. I know, I know. Give it, give a little hint on the smart city stuff, because uh, I think that's really cool. And and thinking about what um, could be a fun future conversation to blow all of our minds. Yeah. So in Loudoun, Virginia, um, there's a there's a brilliant guy named Min, and he he basically came up with an idea and is building an entire city. Um, it's a it's a million square feet um, uh, in Loudoun, Virginia, which is kind of like the capital of data centers these days. I mean, more copper fiber runs under that ground, I think, than anywhere else in the United States. And mm. so they are building the city on top of a main intersection of that, which means the city itself will have some of the fastest Wi-Fi um, and fiber connections um, possible. And so being able to leverage that to create a whole intelligent city that's constantly collecting data. And obviously anybody who lives and works there would have to opt into that, but allowing the city to constantly learn from itself. And I've been brought in as an advisor on the retail side of it and 
how do you integrate the right technology with, with consumers and make it so that it's something that enhances their current behavior and doesn't try to change it and is frictionless, but also allows for really cool kind of um, forward thinking retail in, in, in the city. So they broke ground last year. Phase one is underway. Um, these things take time, but it's, it, it's definitely a very forward thinking endeavor, a big endeavor. Um, but, you know, you're starting to see pockets of it throughout the country for sure. And maybe that should either excite people or terrify them. But exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, you know, Amazon's making people more and more open to it, right? Because you start to see what's possible, and then people start to expect it, even though it's a little creepy. Yeah, a little yeah, creepy yeah. that Alexa hears everything I say, but it is awesome that she has my shopping list ready for me when I walk into the supermarket too. Yeah. So. Amen. Amen. Anyway, so when when things are convenient, we'll give away our data. All right. Well, everyone, this has been. Melissa Gonzalez of the Lionesk Group, um, and that's L-I-O-N apostrophe E-S-Q-U-E. Um, you can find Melissa on Twitter. You can find her on Instagram. You can find her at some cool retail experience uh, <laughs> because she's probably designed it. Um, and Mel, thank you um, for sharing your journey with us. And we look forward to having you back to talk about your super secret project. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll ping you when it's when I'm uh, clear to speak. <laughs> <laughs> we want it first. Yes. All right. Thanks, Mel. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, J. Kelly Hoey, for being our guest host on the Business Builders Show. You can learn more about Kelly at jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey, H-O-E-Y dot C-O. And, of course, you can learn more about me, Marty Wolf, and the Business Builder Show at martywolfbusinesssolutions.com. That's martywolfbusinesssolutions.com. Remember, you can get all our shows and many other great shows at c-suiteradio.com. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf. As a loyal fan of this C-Suite Radio show, we've got an unbelievable offer for you. Listeners to the Business Builder Show get 50% off a C-Suite Network membership. The C-Suite Network will help you become the most strategic person in the room. You'll have access to top-notch benefits and networking, all helping you get the most out of your position. Take advantage of this limited-time offer today. Learn more about the C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR. Again, that's 50% off a C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR.